about 20 miles, 32 kilometers northwest of London, along a particularly quiet and tranquil stretch of the Thames lies a meadow. Blanketed with tall grasses and lush, scattered trees, it looks like something straight out of a landscape painting. Here the wind plays through the boughs, shaking each leaf to create a kind of natural music as the earth breathes. It is, as the ancient Greek poet Theocritus put it, a place where one could sink down with pleasure on deep-piled cushions of sweet rushes and vine leaves freshly stripped from the bush. In short, it's a serene locale, the last place one would expect anything of historic importance to have taken place. And yet, a little over eight centuries ago now, that's exactly what happened on an island in the middle of the stream when an English monarch known as King John signed one of the most important documents in Western and world history. Who drafted the Magna Carta? What was contained within its pages? And how did this document go on to shape future legal reforms in both England and abroad? I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and welcome to the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. Life in medieval Europe was precarious, to say the least. With the relative stability of the Roman Empire gone, a series of local rulers rose up to maintain a sense of order, though at the cost of individual rights. The common people, or peasant class, was confined to laboring and toiling away in the Lord's fields while receiving a miserable pittance upon which to eke out the meagerest of existences. Royalty, on the other hand, was living high off the hog, as the old saying goes, holding lavish banquets and eating and drinking to their heart's content all while their subjects lived in nothing more than glorified slavery. To make matters worse, these monarchs would often tax the people quite heavily, leading to an even greater rift between them and their subjects. It was in just such a political climate as this that England found herself in the early 13th century, where the monarch, like the dictators of the 20th century, wielded absolute power. It all began a century and a half prior in 1066, when England was invaded by William I, better known to history as William the Conqueror, a Norman-French king who, upon gaining the English throne, secured for himself a position of power quite unlike those of his Anglo-Saxon predecessors. To add salt to the wounds, he'd done so by stepping over his own barons, noblemen who pledged their loyalty and service to him in exchange for land, who had fought long and hard to subjugate the country in his name by stripping them of their rights and claims. As if that weren't enough, the king reduced the power that the then-pope, Alexander II, had wielded over the Church of England, a shocking decision that nearly severed all ties with the papacy in Rome. Though William's successors and descendants made feeble attempts to reverse the king's policies and appease both the church and the barons, such edicts were chock-full of hollow words and even hollower promises. It wasn't until the mid-twelfth century, 1154 to be precise, that a new monarch, Henry II, himself a descendant of William I, began cementing royal oaths and decrees in writing, and approving them with his official seal in an attempt at restoring liberties to, quote, God and Holy Church, and all his earls, barons, and all his men, unquote. Though this was seen, at the time, as a major step forward in reducing the monarchy's unlimited power, it did little to bring about real change, as no clear definition of said liberties had ever been set in stone. As a result, it became increasingly unclear to the barons as to what liberty and justice meant. As William's dynasty, known as the Angevin dynasty, strengthened its administration by appointing wealthy financiers, educated judges, and trained clerks into positions of power, the power of the barons diminished considerably. A series of tax increases under Richard I's reign at the end of the 12th century caused even further dissatisfaction, so much so that by the time John assumed the throne in 1199, he had inherited quite a volatile situation. Of course, the start of John's reign saw little improvement. 
Unlike those who had come before him, he dispensed with the usual list of campaign promises, so to speak, altogether. No sooner had he been crowned did he disembark for France, having already become entangled in a war of succession with his nephew, Arthur of Brittany, and was tasked with securing England's hold over Normandy. In his stead, he ordered the Archbishop of Canterbury at the time, one Hubert Walter, a justiciary, that is, an administrator of justice, named Geoffrey Fitzpeter, and the royal adviser, William Marshall, to summon the nobility to assure them that he'd make good on his promise to uphold their rights. Having heard these words before, however, the nobles put little stock in them, and two years later in 1201, his earls refused to fight alongside him in France until he kept his word. But as the crisis with France deepened, King John found himself in a bit of a spot, as the threat of a French invasion loomed ever larger with each passing day, and with little support from his subjects, he had to swear to uphold the nobles' rights in order to gain their trust and military prowess. All might have gone well, however, had the English not lost Normandy to the French in 1204. With the English garrison at Normandy having been overtaken by the enemy, the king had to rely solely on his own resources, which were few and far between. With nowhere else to turn for support, he demanded scootage, monetary payment in place of serving in the military, from the nobles. Little did he know that this would prove to be the proverbial straw to break the camel's back. It was the church that retaliated first. They'd had just about enough of John's broken promises. As an act of defiance, they held a free election, an illegal practice in those days, as ecclesiastical elections had to be held with the king's permission, and appointed one Stephen Langston as Archbishop of Canterbury. This naturally led to a feud between John and Pope Innocent III, the latter of whom excommunicated the king as a result, depriving the monarch access to some of his most trusted administrators and supporters. Between barons, earls, and the clergy, it was surprisingly none other than the new archbishop himself who lit the fuse of revolution, demanding an official grant directly from the king king that, once and for all, would clearly define the nobility's liberties. Backed into a corner, there was nothing the king could do but concede to their demands. Thus the first documents that would become the Magna Carta, from the Latin for Great Charter, or Great Decree, were born, with the initial draft being read aloud for the first time in 1213 at St. Albans Abbey in Hertfordshire, about 20 miles, or 32 kilometers, northwest of central London, in the Vare River Valley. Acting as intermediary between King John and the nobles were none other than Stephen Langston, the Archbishop of Canterbury, as well as William Marshall, the royal adviser turned earl. Thus the pair set to work doing whatever they could to appease some of the more belligerent barons, though they clearly had their work cut out for them. Many of the barons were hell-bent on going to war against the king, as these early drafts of the Magna Carta didn't live up to their standards. At long last, on June 15, 1215, after much compromise and negotiating, and even further revisions, the first part of the document, known as the Articles of the Barons, was drafted and stamped into law with the royal seal. Four days later, on June 19th, at that selfsame island in the middle of the stream at Runnymede that opened this episode, the complete Magna Carta was read and accepted by both the king and his barons. In it were a series of 63 clauses that, for the first time since William I's conquest of England nearly 150 years earlier, clearly defined the liberties of the royal subjects as well as introduce important legal reforms. Perhaps the most famous among these was the 61st clause, in which barons were granted the right to, quote, choose 25 representatives from their number to serve as a form of security to ensure the preservation of the rights and liberties that had been enumerated, unquote. Though the origins of this clause are unknown, it was the first in Western European history that meant to limit the monarch's power, knocking them down from their pedestal of absolute power and redistributing it to the few. 
Needless to say, the details of this particular clause proved not to be all that popular with King John, though he wouldn't live long enough for it to be tested out during his reign. He died in the late night early morning hours of October 18th and 19th, 1216, while his kingdom faced the threat of invasion by King Louis VIII of France. Sensing, or perhaps knowing, full well that neither John nor his successor would uphold the Magna Carta, specifically its infamous 61st clause, several rogue barons sided with the French king in his attempt at claiming England for himself. With the country teetering on the brink of civil war, just as French invasion seemed imminent, Henry III, John's successor, called together a council in which it was agreed that the Magna Carta would be reissued on November 12th that same year, in the hopes of gaining the support of those rogue barons. Considerably shorter than the first version with just 42 clauses, this Magna Carta did little in the way of reducing the power of the monarchy, mostly because it was drafted in a time of war, when such executive powers, it was felt, were necessary in raising funds for the war effort. In addition, the Church of England lost its guarantee of free elections. When questioned by both the clergy and the barons, the royal council replied that, quote, all omissions are postponed for future consideration, unquote. As to be expected with all the bureaucratic red tape, they were never brought up again. But much like gout, which returns in adverse weather or hot muggy conditions, the Magna Carta would return in a second reissue in the autumn of 1217. This time, that selfsame royal council under the authority of King Henry III had gone through the document word for word, adding several spoken clarifications so as to be as direct as possible to the clergy and barons who were present. Under this new and improved version, assized justices, those who preside over a court, would be sent to each shire, that is, county, not the one where Frodo Baggins lives, four times a year to oversee minor legal cases, as opposed to the previous law, which was limited to just once a year. More complex court cases in these jurisdictions would be overseen by bench judges. Widows were at last allowed access to inheritance. Scootage, the aforementioned practice of payment in lieu of military service, was done away with altogether. These were just some of the new features addressed in this latest version of the Magna Carta, but even they weren't the most critical of clauses. Among other things, this new document did what its predecessors hadn't. It laid down, for once, rights and liberties in language that was clear and direct. For example, the 39th clause famously stated that the king couldn't take away so much of a baron's parcel that the latter couldn't perform their duties of loyal service to him. This was important in that it would keep the barons faithful to their monarch, while also allowing them to freely maintain their land, without fear of losing it to the whims of an erratic, tyrannical ruler. In addition, the court in each shire would be responsible for maintaining law and order along with its citizens. Up to that point, the citizens themselves had been responsible for ensuring order through a communal oath known as Frank Pledge, which placed the power of keeping the peace and good behavior solely within the people's hands. Backed by the court, justice could now be doled out fairly and legally in a joint effort between the two. Such were the first tentative steps in Western Europe to curb the power of the king and monarchy in general. But, as we know, it wouldn't be the last. When the English Bill of Rights was drafted and signed into effect in 1689 by King William III and Queen Mary II, some of the language within it had been borrowed, almost directly, from the Magna Carta itself. But while the former document had been drafted to restrict the king's power so that the nobility could have more liberties, the English Bill of Rights extended, for the first time, to all subjects of the crown, regardless of class or socioeconomic background. In short, it placed parliamentary power over the monarchy, restricting a ruler's executive power and placing it in the hands of a prime minister as well as a body of elected representatives. But the Magna Carta's influence wasn't limited solely to England or the British Isles. In fact, in the late 18th century, its largest North American colony, what would one day become the United States, looked to the charter during and after its war for independence and drew upon its clauses for its own constitution and Bill of Rights. Though unaware of it on that balmy June day in 1215, King John and his barons and clergy were signing one of the most important documents in world history, one that would shape empires and nations for generations to come. 
the Magna Carta was born out of man's struggle for freedom and independence, to be the master of his own fate and destiny. It's a struggle that continues up to the present moment. As the writer Simon Wiesenthal once famously said, Freedom is not free, one must fight for it every day. Those medieval English nobles did just that, and, in doing so, ushered in great changes whose effects would eventually trickle down through the ages and be felt, not just in England, but throughout the world. A great charter, indeed. Thanks for listening again this week, and welcome to the start of the third season of the History Loves Company podcast. I can scarcely believe that I started this podcast a little over two years ago now, as it truly seems like yesterday. I have a great many interesting topics lined up this season, so I do so hope you'll join me for them. If you've been listening from the start and would like to support continued content through this podcast, please consider becoming a monthly supporter. Just visit anchor.fm slash historylovescompany and click the support button. From there, you'll be redirected to three monthly support plans that fit your budget or monetary situation. Listening and sharing also help me out immensely, so please do so wherever you listen to your podcasts, as it's available on all platforms. Tune in again next Thursday, as we take a comprehensive look at the man who almost single-handedly triggered World War I, right here on the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off. See you then.